0: Tonight on Arena, What's Love Got to Do With It? Broker and Preacher are the movies up for review. And Cormac Larkin and Jim Doherty on The Legacy of Irish Jazz Guitarist Louis Stewart. one is the text you can tweet the programme at RTE Arena Well, Thursday means it is movie night What's Love Got To Do With it? it is a romantic comedy that explores the concept of arranged marriages in a Pakistani community in the UK it's directed by Shekhar Kapoor and written by the English journalist Jemima Khan our second film is Broker it brings us to South Korea and a jaw-dropping opening act where a baby boy is left by his teenage mother in a box outside a Christian church she plans to return for the child but someone else gets there first and finally from Asif Capadia Capadia the director of the documentaries like Senna and Maradona and Amy we have Creature is actually the title of the film Capadia's cinematic adaptation of the dance work created by the famed choreographer at Graham Cannes for the English National Ballet. Declan Burke and Arlene Hunt have seen all three films and they're with me in studio this evening. Let's start with what's love got to do with it, which is maybe a week too late to be talking about <laughs> <laughs> this particular film, perhaps. A rom-com set between London and Lahore. Zoe, played by Lily James, a young single documentary maker, follows her childhood friend... Mm-hmm, I think that might be a loaded term. Kaz, played by Shahzad Latif on his journey to his ancestral home in Pakistan where he was willingly ex- has willingly accepted a bride in a match arranged by his parents. Yeah, I, as I said, Arlene Hunt and Declan Burke in studio with me. The minute I saw her friend, I kind of knew where this was going. Look, it's a romantic, it's a rom-com, uh, Arlene, that we're talking about here. I guess... We kind of know what we're going to get, don't we?
1: Yeah, we we know. Well, let's have a look at the writer first of all, Jemima Khan, and what does Jemima Khan? What is her her influences? She was married to Imran Khan when she was a very young woman. He was considerably older than she was, so she they had a they had a romantic marriage, say. Mm. And so this is is. So Kaz in this situation has for a number of years tried various different romances and they have not worked out for him. So he has decided to take his parents' advice and allow them to set him up in an arranged marriage. And, uh, well, Zoe, who is a fearsome, independent and clever, intelligent, beautiful young woman. And single. And single. I just would like to point out that she's very, very single. Having, right. having gone through several unsuitable suitors along yeah. the way, is appalled to learn that this handsome doctor, let's also don't forget, he's a doctor, <laughs> uh, is uh, allowing something as old-fashioned as, you know, an arranged marriage to happen because she, can't, she literally can't get her head around this. How yeah. could this be possible? What, why would such a modern, you know, friend allow <laughs> such a thing to happen?
0: Okay, I think we get the setup basically there. Um, She's making a film and does she need him to be part of it or she wants him to be part of it? The whole
2: point is that he is the part of it. The the documentary film, by the way, is called Contractually. Love Contractually is the title of the documentary film she wants to make. He is the focus of the film and the idea of a sister's uh, marriage rather than arranged marriage. This is the the, the new, the 21st
0: century take on arranged marriage. Okay, well, she has to persuade him, of course, to let her make the documentary all about him so here we have uh, Lily James and Shahzad Latif as Zoe and Kazim uh, neighbours and friends since childhood and they're talking about the, the subject of the um, arranged marriages versus western love marriages uh, and they're playing ping pong which gives them something to be at while they're chatting <laughs> I
1: was getting my, It's been a while since I've played this uh, dare I ask what
3: about love? You know what? It's just a different way of getting there. You don't have to start with love. You end with love, you know, and over time, you grow to love the person you're with.
2: Hmm.
1: What, like Stockholm Syndrome?
3: <laughs> you know my parents aren't making me do this, eh? No, I know. That's why
1: I'm so surprised.
3: Do you know what the UK divorce rate is? No. I found out. Uh, 50 percent 55%. <laughs> and guess what it is for arranged marriages? 6%. Boom! The thing is, I've seen it work. I want my kids to have what I had: stability. Marriage isn't just about two people being loved. It's it's a bigger thing than that. It's about what's best for children and the whole family,
1: society. Just say all that weird, old-fashioned, conventional shit on camera. It's so (laughs) annoying. If I win this rally, right? Yeah. You're doing the film. (laughs) Ah. Oh.
0: Does she win the rally? Don't <laughs> that's
1: you there. Oh,
0: don't spoil it on me. Don't spoil it on me. Don't spoil it on me. Okay, look, this, we shouldn't be too cynical. That's Lady James and Shasad Latif uh, in a scene from What's Love Got to Do with It. It is a romantic comedy, and sure, what else would it be doing other than have two friends who've been, you know, each other since childhood finally have the scales pulled away from the front of their eyes say, Oh, it's you. Surely, <laughs> Declan, that's a perfectly acceptable thing if I haven't given away the
2: ending. Uh, well it, it, it certainly would but actually I think Jemai McCann is after something slightly All different right. in this film and I think it's maybe no coincidence that it's been released a week after Valentine's Day. I don't think they wanted to, this to be confused with some kind of Okay November the would be a good month for that then I would <laughs> say. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so we like for example the, the meet cute is such a classic trope of yeah. the rom com and, and the, the star-crossed lovers meet at the start and things go wrong and so forth. There is no me cute in this film as we're pointing out they've been friends since childhood and so forth no romance as romantic as it gets is being up in a treehouse sharing an illicit cigarette that's as romantic as it gets Um, and there is a me cute as you suggest that there is a bride-to-be who enters the picture and she literally enters the picture because he meets her first on Zoom uh, because she's in, in Pakistan but I think what Jemai McCann do, is doing here is deliberately kind of subverting the cliches because we, we we don't get our meat cue. We get a couple that know each other very, very well. And the dialogue, the usual flirtatious banter dialogue that we get in romantic comedies, that's much more of almost a Socratic dialogue about East versus West. And, what's, and, and Arlene's right that here we have Zoe, who's a feisty, independent, talented young woman, very attractive. He's very easy on the eye too. But for all our protestations on behalf of romantic love, She's a singleton by choice. You know, this mm. is a woman who is not buying into the fairy tale. At one point, she says she's less interested, she's more interested in the glass ceiling than glass slippers. So, it, it's both of them are coming at this the idea of romantic love from two very different pointage, uh, points of view. And I years. guess,
0: too, does it, does it perhaps, you know, to us Westerners who, of course, know everything better than anybody knows anything, does it <laughs> open our eyes to the possibility that arranged marriages have their have their possibility of being just as successful as one that happens by accident, well, as it's, it were. A, it's
1: a cultural difference. Every culture is different. I mean, what, what Zoe fails to seem to notice all the way through the film is the the arranged marriage between Kaz's parents, mm. who, which is enormously successful. Played and by
0: Shabana, Azmi and Zahid's Jeff Mirza. Yeah,
1: and they're, they're, it's a hugely successful relationship, but they obviously have like a great love for each other that they've developed over time and a respect for each other mm. that they have developed over time. And whereas uh, Zoe's mother, Kath, which is played by Emma Thompson, is divorced and from her husband and has some very disparaging remarks to make about the husband's new mm. paramour. Oh. Um, which, you know, was actually quite funny and quite <laughs> catty. But I also thought, like, do you, do you not see, you know that romantic love is not all it's cracked up to be in comparison with like a stable long term loving relationship built on mutual respect she doesn't she, she doesn't seem right. to see
0: it well let's have a listen to a clip where we get some music playing and a little bit of poetry and I thought alright this again sounded to me like a, a rom-com trope but maybe I'm wrong let's have a listen oh wow
3: I want to show you something come come <laughs> Sufi music. No, 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 just listen, just listen. He's singing to God. Singing about dangerous love.
2: Keeps him awake at night.
0: There you go now. The doctor plays, gets the band playing the Sufi music for you. He looks into your eyes, Arlene Hunt, and he says. Love keeps the poet awake at night. Sure, that's it. You're gone.
1: You would, yeah. Uh, Except that he ran away from his own wedding marriage to go and <laughs> listen to this music with the lady who is not his paramour.
0: All oh, right. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> That was not a nice thing.
1: Well, I'm just thinking: if you're going to go along <laughs> to listen to romantic music, and you're explaining the romantic music to a lady, you should probably explain yon oh, poem to the, right. your your future lady wife. So,
0: Declan talked about a Socratic dialogue in in and around love. I mean, I thought it was a Socratic dialogue. And when Harry met Sally, when they discussed whether friends could could remain friends after mm-hmm. having had sex, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. that's Socratic. Uh, is this a rom com and nothing more, or does it work for you, Arlene? Um,
1: there are some really, really touching moments in this, and I, I and I especially with the family, with uh, Kaz's family, which I really, really enjoyed, and they they mm. have their own sort of <coughs> coming of of, of uh, a arra- coming of understanding a different culture late, very late in the film, and it's really pretty, and I. I think I would like to have seen more of their family, actually. Uh, Even though they go to Lahore, it's very much centred around Zoe and Zoe's feelings and Zoe's emotions. And as as much as I enjoyed that, I just thought there was something marvellous about Kaz's family and their absolute love for each other. But then you find out that this love has a cost as well, which I thought was really interesting. So... um, Yeah, it has its good points and it has its points that made me raise my eyebrow and twitch it slightly. All right. As is often the case with rom-coms.
0: Right. So how many stars did the rom-com get? I'm giving it
1: a a two out of five.
0: So there was more eye twitching and eyebrow raising. There was some eye
1: twitching. (laughs)
0: Right. Okay. All right. Two out of five. Yeah. Deccan, I think, the old romantic in you may have had his love bone tickled.
2: Uh, well, no, it was, certainly was. I, I enjoyed it a lot more than that. I thought it was a wee bit unnecessarily sentimental towards the end. A couple, uh, couple of plot uh, strands tied up mm. unnecessarily. But other than that, I, I liked the fact that it took the romantic comedy tropes and conventions and, and, and really had a, right. had a ball with them. Um, There's an awful lot more going on under the surface than just will they, won't they? Uh, And I think Jemima McCann has put together a really strong script. I think this won the best comedy in the Rome Film Festival um, and I'm surprised it hasn't kind of popped up a bit more all all around. Yeah, I think it's strong. Stars from you, David? Four out of five from me.
0: Four out of five. Four versus two. So big difference of opinion on that one. Let us move on then to... Broker, a film inspired by the Korean phenomenon of baby boxes, which are heated boxes, usually attached to churches where newborn babies can be deposited rather than abandoned on the streets and will stay warm until they are are rescued. Even as you read that, you kind of... It has so many echoes of things that have happened in this country, obviously, in in the past. Um, How... What's, what's the kind of tone of this film? What are we looking at in, in essence here, Arlene?
1: It's a complicated film in many ways because it's the way it's told is in a very gentle and very loving manner and the mm. characters are very, so warmly portrayed. But they're warm characters that deal, are dealing with this most horrendous horrible situation in which is basically baby trafficking and also women that feel that they're not in any position to keep their child and are Constantly throughout this this movie, I've been told they're throwing away the baby.
0: So they're be, uh, they're being told they're throwing away yeah, the baby, yeah. is, and are they being told that they're not fit to hold on to the baby as well? Was well, that, that it that would be better for
1: this child to be raised and sold, yeah. in fact, and raised yeah. with a different family. Who All very afford familiar, it? isn't it? Yeah, very hugely familiar. And I don't know, I don't know. Maybe it's because of my Irishness. It just it really. Mm. I didn't know how to feel about it for quite a long time when I was watching it. I I got really cross about it, and I I got cross about how you know uh, uh, with the girl's name she was moon so young and even that moon so young she was she was just a really young girl going up to this and she left a note with the baby at the start of it saying I'll, you know I will be back for you and then everything mm. that she wanted, everything she she felt or she thought in that moment, it was just roughshod rode over. They deleted the video of... Uh, well, actually, she didn't put the baby into the box, it should be clear. It's two police officers who are, are watching the church because they know something is going on in the church about baby trafficking. Yeah. And they're watching. She left the baby on the ground outside the box. So she didn't physically put her child into this baby box, but they did because they wanted to protect the child. And in all of this... Everything that she does is overridden. Everything that she does is overridden. She has no power whatsoever in this situation until that baby is taken and she realises what's happening. And in that little tiny moment, she has a tiny, little, tiny element of power to get back. And it's kind of slightly devastating to watch.
4: Uh,
0: Even as you're describing it, I'm finding it difficult to take on board because it it is all too familiar. Obviously, it's a different culture we're we're talking about here uh, as well in terms of how, how it plays out. But it all sounds all too familiar. The baby is, again, this is a loaded term, the
2: baby is rescued then. Is that
0: the term we would use for what happens, uh, but
2: Declan? Uh, you could say rescued, yeah. Um, what happens is, I mean, the film's called Broker and the film is rescued by these baby brokers, inverted commas, um, two kind of low-life criminals, Dong Su and Sang Hyun. Uh, and, and for the first 10, 15, 15 minutes, I I was on tenterhooks for this. I'm going, oh my, well, what? prospects this, does this baby have it's a kind of a bait and switch scenario at the start of the film because it starts in this downpour monsoon Busan is dark and grim mm. it's like something out of Blade Runner and then we discover that our two low life criminals are actually two lovely guys they're going to For take king-nevers. really they're going to take really good care of this child and they're going to make sure it goes to a good home now they're going to make a profit of it there's no doubt about it but suddenly I was able to relax. The child is not in immediate danger and then we suddenly realise we're into a kind of a more sort of kind of like quirky characters as if it's kind of like a Coen Brothers film set in in South Korea. Um, And then So Young, she does leave this note as Arlene says that she's going to come back they all leave this note, one of the criminals tells her. So we didn't, this is they're shocked when she comes back. This is throwing their plans into all sorts of disarray. And the three of them set off because she puts her foot down. She said, this is still my baby. I'm going to insist that it goes to the right couple, not just the couple that's going to pay the most money. So they almost start to become this kind of, Not a dysfunctional family, because they actually become a function, but a very unconventional family as they hit the road in search of this new parents for the baby. Which, again,
0: has elements within it that you would say, okay, there's there's something to look at that has a positive aspect in there. But I still find myself, even as Declan's describing, they're having big question marks over the actions that are actually happening to this compl- child. But
1: it's super complicated to know how to feel about it because, as Declan says, they, they interlock as a family. There's a lovely scene in it where she says at one point, you know, I wish, that, uh, I wish we had met sooner. I wish this had happened sooner, that they, she would find someone. Because in their weird, quirky way, they are very supportive of her. Yeah, and her decision but she doesn't actually make a decision because she has absolutely no power she doesn't want this child to, have, to live the life that she's been living up until this moment and instead of anyone saying to her well let's help you keep this child you know it's like well let's mm-hmm. see what price we can get for this child and that'll be a way to start up and set up your new life together and it's complicated more so because in her background we learn quite early on in the movie that you know she has something that is very dark hanging over her And it's going to make life more complicated for her no matter what happens. So they kind of consistently said to suggest like, well, look at these wonderful families, you know, we we can set him up in a home. You know, he doesn't have to go to an orphanage because one of the men grew up in an orphanage and his mother never came back for him. So he's slightly bitter about everything. And the idea that this child would grow up in an orphanage is something that he doesn't want to see happen. But by the same token, Hmm. you have to ask yourself moralistically, for people who buy babies, you know, yeah, what makes you think that this would be a better place for a child to grow up? You, you bought this child, yeah. and a lot of the value in the child is because he's male and looks a certain way. In fact, he loses a bit of value because he he doesn't have great eyebrows. <laughs> oh God!
0: Yeah, see, this, this this is where you run into problematic areas. And oh, do, do, do without so giving too much away, do we get to a point where we we see the child with a family or a number of families? Is is this part of the? Kind of the, the, the drama of the piece, there is
2: in, in yeah, and, and drama is possibly overstating it in, oh. in the context that we're presenting the story because there are a number of encounters with potential parents and there are hagglings and negotiations and so forth. This is all done in a kind of a blackly comic way, as L- Arlene says, at one point because. Someone points out that the eyebrows aren't very Korean on that child. So they're penciling in extra eyebrows. And then the mother of the child sees it. She, what are you doing to my darling mm-hmm. child, etc. Cetera, etc.? Cetera. So it's it's a blend of um, a kind of a criminal caper and a black farce. Um, and, and what you realise as the story goes on, and this is what makes it complicated, and our reactions to it complicated Every character in the film including the cops that are pursuing the criminals include the criminals themselves they've all craving some form of normal family that they've all been deprived yeah. of in their own Childhoods, and, yeah, well, and of it's course, even that's a
0: even that's a loaded term when you say normal family. I, well, this you is, know, it's, it's, so what it's, defines this that
2: perception of the you know the white picket fence and two point four, yeah. and they and they gradually realize this is not what defines a family.
0: Okay, so um we uh, how nuanced are we in this treatment? You know, did, did you know how to feel by the end of it, or was it just a thought provoking film that stayed with you, Arlene, it's, as you get a start It stayed with
1: me, and I I came out of it. But a little bit of a lighter heart than I had going in mm. with the opening of it certainly the opening was very dark and I thought oh this I don't know where this is going to go but at the end of it things have changed for all of the characters in it all of them every single even even the police yeah. involved in it and so I gave it 4 out of 5 is, I really enjoyed the movie itself but it has left me with my god not a yeah, lot of questions on how, of questions. how to feel
0: yeah it, it, you're making me want to see it now just yeah. to, to see what the, how the, those the questions are I have are posed. to say the
1: performances are amazing right. really okay. impre- impressive
0: across the board so four from yeah, what are you saying something similar I'm
2: saying four out of five any good film any good kind of art is going to ask you to ask yourself questions how do I feel how do I react mm. to this and so forth this is what exactly what this film does little bit sentimental again at the end as it ties up various plot strands but very strong great ensemble cast All right. and beautifully directed well, that also.
0: sounds like it's one uh, one to, to go and see for sure from both of your points of view let's move on then to our final film last Friday um, Kay spoke with director. Actor Asif Kapadia about his movie adaptation of Akram Khan's dance work *Creature*, which opens in selected cinemas from tomorrow. Story is loosely based on the Buchner play *Voycheck*, set in a dilapidated former Arctic research station, where Jeffrey Kirio is the titular creature who is unknowingly enlisted by a military brigade and undergoes a series of horrific tests and experiments. We are in a very peculiar world here, Declan.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very stark. We're we're not sure, you know, what kind of era is this? The future is it the past? Because the opening of the film plays out. It's a large, bare, stark room. I mean, this is obviously the stage for the ballet. Mm. But it's as you say, it's an Arctic station. We don't only gradually realise that, uh, and there's a voiceover of Richard Nixon ringing the astronauts on the moon in 1969.
0: Yeah, let's, I have that clip actually so let's have a listen to, to that point because it kind of sets s- the tone. It sets, and it sets the film off on, on its journey. So as you say uh, the, 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 this is the phone call between Richard Nixon and the Apollo 11 crew his phrase because of what you have done starts to get a kind of a, a treatment as you, as, you would, as you might call it
5: of what you have done the
4: heavens have become a part of man's world and you talk to us from the sea of tranquility inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to to earth peace to earth peace to earth peace to earth peace to earth because
5: of what you have done
4: for one priceless moment in the whole history of man all the people on this earth are truly warm
0: So, what we're hearing there is that the Apollo Eleven phone call going on, and then the repeated phrase. But we are hearing the breathing in the background. That's the. This That's is the, the creature. creature. This yeah. is the Jeffrey Kirio yeah. character yeah. watching this. What's happening to the creature? As as it, do I say he, she, it, or they are watching?
1: It, it's it essentially the more this, this plays out, the more you hear that, like, for what you've done first, his body is racked, basically racked. It's it's almost like he's getting electric shock treatment in those moments where he's, you mm. know, every time that that phrase is used over and over and over again with the static, he he sort of relaxes his body, his body then tenses up again, and then he has another, like, another attack. It's like every single part of, every, all of his senses are reacting to this expression over and over and over again, and it's really super powerful.
0: There's a love story here as well. Um, the creature falls, or he, is he just referred to as creature, falls in love with the cleaner uh, Marie or Mary, depending on whether she's Irish or not, played by <laughs> Irina Taka- Takahashi here, and she deserves the kindness there. But she's also being pursued by a, a kind of a violent, a violent major character that has the echoes of Vojtech in there, I guess.
2: Yeah, definitely. This is a very uh, brutal world that they're living in, and and when we first meet uh, Marie, she is being uh, subjected to a brutal attack by the the, the Major uh, which the creature witnesses and this kind of awakens because he's, we, he's originally pr- portrayed as a very primitive uh, kind of almost animalistic exactly what uh, Arlene is saying about the way his body is moving and so forth start. so it's, it's this awareness of it happens at the start it's not a spoiler so he rescues her from this attack and this kind of inspires something uh, he adapts to a human world and and continues to evolve as the ballet unfolds
0: As the ballet unfolds which is the question I want to ask uh, this is a dance piece I mean how am I in a world like Giselle am I in a world like Swan Lake Mm -hmm. what kind of a world am I I in
1: I have to be honest with you I don't know a whole lot about ballet and my previous experiences ballet were like tutus and yeah. people looking really glamorous and Swan Lake and things of that nature. Uh, this is completely different. So it's this a, it's is, a
0: contemporary feel of it. It's
1: contemporary. It's violent. It's powerful. It's, there's a lot of fear involved in the dancing. The, when the soldiers in particular on the, on the, on the, in the, in the, uh, what is the name of this place? Not the Arctic. It is the Arctic. It is the Arctic Arctic Station. In the the station, when they dance, they, they move in this really uniform pattern. They don't touch anything. Their arms don't touch anything. The doctors, there's a particular doctor in here. She's white, very austere when she dances and when the major comes near her and several times he goes to put his hand on her and she kind of flinches dances away from you know straight away that yeah. you're dealing with an a toxic, awful lot dangerous, lot of dangerous everything is said in movement I,
0: and I think obviously we're in an Arctic station here and what we hear there about how you know the planets everybody's <laughs> it, we're, we're in an end of the world type sure. of narrative climate change I presume is a big theme here how is that explored and how does it how does it tidy itself up at the end if it does well
2: decline? there's definitely a kind of a post-apocalyptic feel to hmm. it the a, a lot of the dancing is kind of done Upwards, so upwards and out. The research station is part of a programme to try and help humanity escape a dying planet whenever they open the doors, minus 90 degrees outside and so forth. So it's quite a timely piece in that respect. The characters are supposedly mankind's last hope. But it's this quasi-fascistic quality to them that Arlene is alluding to. This is not the last hope we want for humanity. The creature actually comes the, through. These are the worst
1: people you want getting off the planet yeah. because so they already touch- have a hierarchy and they're already cruel
0: yeah it sounds like there's a touch of Caliban about the Creature there's a touch of that kind of feel off it stars from you on this one Declan
2: yeah unlike Arlene modern ballet is right in my wheelhouse uh Sean yeah no having haven't a clue but loved it 4 out of 5 incredibly powerful performances all right, and you're saying I
1: gave it 5 out of 5 it yeah. blew my socks off I was so impressed with yeah. all of it and I
0: believe the the, the score by Vincenzo La Magna is pretty Phenomenal. impressive oh, and it's been impressive. released as an album tomorrow Really? So. so there you go that, that's part of our i imagine Bowie would love it. Yeah, that's yeah. what I
1: kept thinking of. Like, there's so many touches Bowie of Bowie would like to it.
0: this. Okay, <laughs> so that's uh, Arlene Hunt and Declan Burke on our three films this evening. What's love got to do with it? Broker and finally Creature. The Dutch painter Piet Mondrian, one of the pioneers of twentieth-century abstract art, left Holland in the early 1910s to to live in Paris. He was attracted by that city's vibrant art scene at the time. He did move back to Holland during the war, but eventually returned to the French capital, where many of his now iconic geometric paintings were created in a studio that he occupied at Rue du Depart on the Montparnasse district of Paris. Studio was demolished in 1936, but it has since been reconstructed. And it's through this reconstruction process that the artist John Beatty approached the role of the studio in the production of art. John's exhibition, Reconstructing Mondrian, has just opened at the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin and he's with me in the studio now. Uh, talk to me first of all, if you would, John, about the, the reconstruction of this uh, mm-hmm. particular studio. It's a, a Dutch architect who is responsible
3: for that. Yep, that's right. Uh, the, the reconstruction was uh, well, the re- reconstruction of of uh, Mondrian's studio from the nineteen twenties hmm. was recreated. Or Franz Potsma, who is the architect, the Dutch architect, uh, in nineteen ninety four, he started his twenty year life ambitious project to recreate to scale uh, Mondrian's power studio to scale. So um, you know, I saw that for the first time. I think in twenty nine, uh, hmm. t- two thousand nine in a at Kunstmuseum Wurzburg. And um you know, when I walked into the space first of all, my first experience of it, um, I kinda of went in there and I thought hang on, is this is this Mondrian? Is this I did I wasn't quite sure and I saw uh how the public were walking into the space as well and thinking that this was a true Mondrian, but what you're looking at is actually, is, it's a replica. Like we're using the word reconstruction, yeah. but uh the word is like a replica or reproduction. Yeah, because
0: yeah. It, it was, it was demolished in 1936. Yeah. It wasn't gently taken down uh, no. like like the Francis Bacon <laughs> his exactly, got, yes. got his studio and and literally painstakingly brought to another place no. and put back together. That's, That's right. not what we're, we're talking about. Something having to be recreated from, I presume, records, pictures,
3: photographs, whatever. Right. Uh, so France Potsman's work to recu- to recreate that studio, it's it's a huge amount of work. It's um, it's taken time to uncover, uh, to get to know Franz, first of all, it took a long time and to uncover his story. And he's very modest and, um, you know, trying to pick out and tease out how he did that. It's, it's quite a scientific process. He is an architect. Um, he wasn't out to make an artwork as such. He was out to kind of, yeah, architecturally and accurately reproduce Mondrian's 1920 studio, which, as you're and you're right, it does not exist. It does not. It only exists. Yes. Sorry,
0: because of this recreation of it literally right. and and to what extent do you feel like you're walking inside i suppose a 3d Montrean painting because yep. the the geometrics of you know the the rectangles the squares uh with the with the with the the black margin black lines yeah. dividing them up the 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 big strong colors the whites the blues the yellows the
3: reds this is what the studio looks like. Uh, exactly what it looked like. You know, and just think of the time, 1920s Paris. Mm. You know, it's quite a contrast. Um, it, is, it is iconic. Like that studio is iconic. It's kind of synonymous mm. of Mondrian. Mondrian had 14 studios in his career. And in some ways, the Paris studio is the Mondrian studio. Yeah. And where he developed that, um, that's his style of painting, where he tested it out, so the studio is kind of is kind of like a three D representation of uh, his painting practice. Yeah, but and people may have seen the, the, the Mondrian exhibition at the National Gallery
0: a couple right. of years back. Now, of years so they're, back. they're yeah. very familiar with those. And I remember at the time yeah. it was when face masks
3: were in full flight. Yeah, and a lot of the Mondrian masks were really noticeable. Yes. You know, I mean that's fascinating to me as well. Seeing, I mean, I love that. You know, yeah. seeing public wearing the Mondrian masks, the bags, the yeah, uh, the dresses. That's, and they're kind of reproductions as well. They're all reproductions too. Where is the gallery now, by the way? Uh, the reconstruction? Yeah. So when the reconstruction, uh, which the actual reconstruction, yeah. which Franz made, when that's not been shown in a museum or consul- cultural institution, it's in storage. Right. So it's a very well, and I mean this kind of respectively, it's a very well designed flat pack if you want to yes. think about it like that, you know, and how he kind of brought it together. So
0: yeah. you're... Exhibition then is a reaction to that, so maybe if the, I don't know if reaction is quite the right mm-hmm. word, but maybe a response to the reconstruction is yeah. that a way of putting it. Yeah. So what have you done?
3: Yeah, um, you know it's it's a long story, and I will try and keep it uh, short as well. But it's it's a project which you know it's, it's been in my life ten years, mm. and when I first saw it, the question which started the project was, you know, what is this studio's function? What is it for? Um, there was a lot of questions. It it kind of presented to me, and um, but I also saw an opportunity uh, to work with the history and the legacy of Mondrian and the and also the history of the studio itself, a subject which is kind of part of my my work and it has been for a long time the subject of the artist studio, and. Um, so I didn't really plan to set out to make this big, massive monster work to you know mm. take up 10 years of my life. It was just getting to know the architects, uh, making uh, partnerships with uh, some of the culture and other cultural institutions, learning more about the process. This concept of uh, looking at something and not sure what's real and what's Mondrian and what's Franz Patzma and then what's my image. So... I was curious to see if I could find a way to create my own reconstruction from a reconstruction of a reconstruction. Yeah, so it, it, it's not that you're making another
0: version of the studio, you're responding to it. And how have you responded to it? In what, in what particular
3: medium? In, yeah. in what way? So um, we brought the... So the, in the Hue Lane, when you go into the gallery, you see a, you know, a large-scale video projection. And what you'll see in there is a film set. The image shows a film set, and you know, basically, I, I asked Franz over a long period of time. I just said, "Franz, can I take your reconstruction and bring it to a film set in Holland and and just document and film its entire mm. process of evolution?" And then when when we brought the crew over to Holland, um, we had a pretty clear idea of what we're you know what we're trying to achieve, but um, we you know, wanted to stay authentic to the, to the reconstruction, to show that process, yeah. but also just find a way through moving image, through cinematic moving image, um, of uh, trying to capture in a, in a very particular way with the rigour of Mondrian, uh, in respect of Franz Potsma, but maybe try and find a new voice or a new kind of uh, replica or reproduction or, or a new kind of image, which uh, is more maybe relevant today. And
0: and is it, if essentially, is it photographs that we have that we
3: see for the most part in in the Hulinen? Uh, well, the the main part of the show is the it is sixty minutes yeah. a sixty minute uh, a moving moving image work. But then the first space you go in, <clears throat> there's a series of hand printed large format um, analog print black and white photographs. So and these are quite a new introduction. It's quite a new series of work which I developed the last couple of years. And they uh, echo some
0: of the geometric shapes, though, of the Mondrian of a Mon, of a Mondrian painting, not specific yeah.
3: ones, but of a Mondrian work. Yeah, I took the 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 Mondrian color palette, which is yellow, blue, uh, red, black, and white, and I uh, then shot in black and white. Fulham, the color canvases, the color yeah. yellow, red, how, and blue in black and white. How that would and, come out in mono in monochrome. Yeah. and what this, what this is about really is uh, it kind of nods to uh, the historical documents which Franz Potzma used uh, to recreate his reconstruction because if you think about it, um, how did the architect create a two scale color re- 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 reconstruction of, of something f- that only existed in black and white in photographs. black and yeah.
0: photographs yeah. Uh, so, one one final question on yeah. it. you sat. Um, You sat in the reconstructed studio for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the what kind of emotional uh, journey was that for you, and how did that feed into your own response?
3: There's oh, there's a lot there. There's a lot there because um, I know the importance, the the cultural, historic Mm. importance of Mondrian's studio, like the, the genuine historical thing that doesn't exist anymore. And I'm also very aware of uh, this is one architect's life's work that has put his life and soul into this reconstruction, mm. and then here I am coming and kind of taking using his Thinking reconstruction to create another step mm. forward. So there's 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 a, there's kind of a series of um, in that process of reproduction replication. There's kind of there's in that image of the studio, all these time frames are kind of embedded in them. The story of Franz Mondrian's story, and then my own story. So it's it's kind of simultaneously all encapsulated within it. I'm so in the one place, you know. So there's okay. um, there's a lot of labour that Franz and his team has put into the the making of this reconstruction, the handmade and uh, the analytical research. But there's also a lot of labour gone into the the next stage, my yeah. phase, the reconstruction. So uh, yeah, there's so many it, levels. Yeah, um, I was going
0: to say, I suppose in ways, if you could describe it, then you wouldn't have made the artwork. You, could, yeah. <laughs> you would just have to see, We just have <laughs> described it. Right. Um, and I think there must be something uh, particularly special about seeing it in the queue Lane where we have the, the Francis important. Bacon Studio, I think that's a, an interesting yeah. dialogue between the Absolutely two things. Yes. Reconstructing Mondrian is the title of the exhibition by John Beatty. It's on show now at the Hugh Gallery in Dublin. Opened at the beginning of the month and it will remain there right through until the 6th of August. So lots of opportunities to see it. Admission is free. You can find out full details on HughLane.ie. You're listening to Thursday Night's Arena. Great, Louis Stewart there playing Antonio Carlos, Joe Beam's wave, and that is from Louis' classic solo album, Out On His Own, which is re-released this week. Seven years after his death in August 2016, Louis Stewart remains Ireland's most revered jazz musician. An extraordinary and gifted guitarist, toured and collaborated with some of the greats of jazz history, including... Benny Goodman and the pianist George Shearing, yet incredibly, because Louis often recorded for small, independent labels, a lot of his best work is not available anymore. Among those labels, the tiny Livia Records, a label set up by uh, the friend of Louis Stewart, the painter, and the late Gerald Davies. Now a group of Irish jazz musicians and supporters have rescued the Livia Records archive, and their first act is to re-release Louis Stewart's great 1976 masterpiece, out on his own and here to talk to me about it is the guitarist's great friend and collaborator pianist Jim Doherty and Irish Times jazz critic Cormac Larkin Jim you, you I suppose Louis is as much to you a pal as he is a, a colleague and a professional uh, a, a master that you, you have played with and, and whose music you are incredibly familiar with What? how do you describe his place not just in Irish jazz in, in jazz
5: in jazz um his place is is way up there um the fact that he never toured all that much in the united states um because he preferred to be dublin based but the amazing thing is the amount of interest that there is in in him in, and his music since he died mm. um i sent one of the out on his own a copy to my old friend bobby shoe in in the united states great trumpet player and um, Bobby immediately sent an order for six more copies for the six guitar players that he knows locally, <laughs> yeah. and they're all discovering Louis now. Yeah,
0: but um, and I guess that that will comic be part of what's going to happen with this re-release of. Now this is the start of I think of a, a re-release of a number of of different albums and records that we'll get over the next period of time. But this will probably bring Louis and Louis's music to to a whole new audience. Uh, who possibly you know haven't got access to his records in the way somebody like you who has them sitting at home? Well, that was the carefully. terrible. That
4: was the terrible thing, Sean. That like the, the so much of Louis' uh, work wasn't available, mm. and, and so there's a generation behind that knew Louis' work very well and ha- had sort of treasured LPs and CDs. But so it was really important when this. It was Dermot Rogers uh, who, who who recovered this archive, and it was really important. It was amazing when we found mm. just what was in there. But it, obviously this record had to be first because it is is—it yeah. is his masterpiece.
0: I, and, and Jim was touching there on this fact that, you know, that Louis didn't want to uh, move away from Dublin. He wanted, he wanted to keep himself living here. But yet he could so easily, and America, I suppose, it's very difficult to not think of America as anything other than the home of jazz. Yeah. And mm-hmm. certainly for any European player right across the board, America, making it in America is kind of hugely important in terms of, of jazz he probably could have done that he had opportunities to do it but chose not to
4: well I suppose one of the great what ifs and Jim can talk about this the, uh, Jim's band uh, w- which featured Louis played mm. at the Montreux Jazz Festival and Louis won twice in a row two years in a row he won a prize for the best soloist at the festival which is some accolade Yeah, yeah. and w- the prize came with a scholarship to berkeley which is the the prestigious jazz school mm. in in boston and if louis had taken it up and ended mm. up mixing in those circles he'd be as big as any guitarist yeah. you know
5: yeah but his, his louis, he he had a great quotation he said you can't teach jazz but you can learn it <laughs> also at that time when he when he got the the scholarship he was about to get married and uh, the whole thing um, was too. Would have been too much of a problem for him to go to Boston to study for three years. You know. Yeah.
0: So he, there were there were other factors. There were other factors. But well, when
5: he won the when he won the prize with, with, with my band, mm. that was um, nineteen. He would have been twenty four. Wow. Yeah.
0: I want to play a little section. Maybe talk to me a little bit about. The communication, how you and and Louis and you you had to communicate with him musically as well as you know what time are we leaving at for the gig tonight, Louis? <laughs> yeah. You know you had to do those sort of things too. Mm. But what was the nature of his musical communication? Because I'm going to play a track where the two of you are literally talking to each other from keyboard across to oh, yeah. to, to guitar.
5: Well, I don't really know that 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 took 56 years. We were we played mm. music together from from 1960 up to.
0: Right, well, then let us listen to what, <laughs> what can happen after that amount of time playing together. This is a, All the Things You Are, um, the Jerome Kerr track, um, and it's you on the keyboard, Jim, and it's Louis on the guitar literally having a conversation <laughs> is the only way I can describe it.
4: That's just a, a
0: flavour there of All the Things You Are, the Jerome Cairn try, uh, song with Jim Doherty, who's with me in studio, and Louis Stewart exchanging solos in, within <laughs> the midst of it. I mean, I, I don't know how, even as you listen to that now, Jim, mm, uh, mm. What, what memories come flooding back to you? Do you remember the specifics of that recording, for I, example? I do.
5: It's, uh, there's a video of it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was uh, a TV show we did in, in a pub. I think. Oh, it's a pub over the north side. there up mm. the, Conway's. Was it Conway's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. It's it's a uh, it's a sort of a telepathy it's a thing when you when you're so familiar with the material. Mm. And uh, we were just breaking it up into eight bar trades there. So it's a thirty two bar tune. So you you just eight eight the middle
0: eight and the last eight. And, and <laughs> when you, when you're doing that though, you know, when it's your eight bars and then you hand over the you hand over the ball to, to, to Louis. <laughs> Does it become a competition, you know, or does it become co- some kind of real communication? Or how, What do you describe that goes on between the two it's of
5: you? It's some form of telepathy, I think. I mean, you have the concrete framework that we're mm. all working off. It's, it's the same hymn sheet for everyone. But there's an old uh, expression among jazz players. The definition of a jazz player is somebody who never plays a tune the same way once. <laughs>
0: And, so and therefore, that out. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, you, you have to know. It's like any conversation. You, you know, it's not. It's not pre-planned. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what makes jazz music totally unique from any other form. You know. And in terms of the give and take of a of a, an eight bar, trans, you know, exchange like mm. the one we were just listening to there, that in, I would guess involves incredible generosity and trust on the part of both players.
5: And you have to trust the rhythm section as well. There's two other guys <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> beating it out there. You know. But it's it's, yeah, it's it's just a combination of of uh, fellows playing in that
0: case fairly familiar material. Yeah, well, geez, I love the way you say it. it's just <laughs> that's that's all it is. Come um, to, to go back to to Louis and the specifics of the Out on His Own album. I mean, we listened to a little bit of Wave at the top there. And I asked immediately, is that him on two guitars? or How, how was that done? Is, it, it, tell us a little bit about the recording process for well, us. Well, was, uh, do you want to? You yeah.
4: Sure. So, well, so they, 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 went, they went out to, uh, uh, Pat Hayes was a recording mm. engineer, uh, uh, actually a film and TV recording engineer, but he had a little studio out in Bray. So they went out there, it was one day. They did some, uh, a few fixes uh, a few months later, but basically one day. And half the tunes Louis would have laid down a rhythm track first anticipating how he was going to solo over it, you know. Yeah. And then the other half of them are just Louis on his own. And most of them are first takes. Wow. And um, it's astonishing. So it, like w- when you hear, like, for instance, I'm old fashioned on it. Uh, just Louis. Yeah, it's lovely. And it's lovely. It, I mean, mm. you're talking about somebody so familiar with the, the material and so deeply kind of into the the, the the what's happening harmonically. And you can hear the his mind at work as he plays you know. I want
0: to play one that, that it's a kind of a surprise track in some ways it's that that he would even approach this particular very Irish song because I think it's something he didn't he didn't do it very often it, but it is it's, an unusual
4: yeah, one for him yeah the, let's, 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 let's well, yeah. the people
0: will know the tune yeah. the minute the minute they, it starts but it, it kind of I got such a great surprise listening to it today just what he does with this very well known tune A little flavour there of she moved through the fur from Louis Stewart, and that from the the album we're talking about tonight, out on his own. Uh, Jim Doherty and Cormac Larkin with me in studio this evening. You you remembered this that tune and a number of other Irish tunes that that he worked on that you worked on with him. Yeah, there was a, there was a
5: famous concert. Well, it wasn't famous here, but it was it was called Music House Ireland, and it was in Berlin in nineteen sixty seven, and it featured the, the Dubliners, the mm. Chieftains. I've uh, a bunch of folk singers. I remember Kathleen Watkins and Deirdre Callahan were there. It was Music House Ireland. And um, I wrote a, a suite based on six Irish themes called, would you believe, Gale Blowin. G <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Dope. Uh, but uh, no. th- we did that one. We did, the two slow ones were that
0: and uh, My Lag and Love. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah. But was you, extraordinary you, extraordinary what he does on the guitar there. Because again, I asked you, Cormac, I said, is that two guitars now or is that one? <laughs> and it was like, there's so much happening. It seemed like like two, two guitars. How did, you know, he would have grown up in, the, in the, uh, the era of the show bands. How did the jazz that Louis Stewart came to give us, how did that come about from that particular climate, Cormac, would you think? It, it, came, it came from listening to records.
5: That's how anybody ever learned anything in those days, Mm. because it was hard to hear jazz live, I'm talking about the 50s, when Louis took up the guitar. So you'd, you'd buy one Barney Kessel album, and he would listen to that over and over, days and days, and figure out how did he do that, how did he play. So uh, the early young Louis Stewart could sound like Barney Kessel one week and then Tal Farlow the week after. You <laughs> never knew. He, and he absorbed all these influences. And, and then, it, took, it took a good few years to get him to where
0: he was incomparable yeah he was Louis Stewart um, what can we look forward to obviously out in his own is is the current uh, release what can we look forward to in, in the months and years to come uh, there's, com-
4: there's some amazing stuff in that archive including a wonderful duo uh, uh, that ne- no one has ever heard before of, of I, Jim and Louis with I, I, Jim on, a, on it. a Fender <laughs> Roads there's a, also a duo with RTE's great uh, Noel Keelhan there's a yeah. lovely there's a live recording with of Louis with Jim Hall from a uh, who's one of the, the greats of uh, jazz guitar. So there's loads of beautiful things to, to yeah. come out over the over the, the the years ahead, you know, and lots to look forward yeah. to. Well, that's why I'm
0: going to finish up with <laughs> something that Louis Stewart did a lot of the time when he was alive, and is going to continue to do now posthumously with these new recordings. You know why I'm saying it when you hear the tune. <laughs> someone happy and he certainly did that and will continue to do so that is the guitar playing there of Louis Stewart my thanks to Cormac Larkin of the Irish Times and Jim Doherty for coming in to us this evening great to see you both and Louis Stewart's classic album Out On His Own will be available from tomorrow it'll be available on CD and digital platforms planned for a vinyl album uh, later on but it'll be the current version will be available from tomorrow February 24th liviarecords.com and that is our lot for this Thursday evening Leah Murphy and Paula Shields research Amandine Pasadavan was the broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sign this evening and tonight's programme produced by Reg Luby. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.